Amen. You guys can be seated. What a story given to us by the mouth of Jesus uh, intended this morning or this evening rather to help us work through what God is like. This whole last season of teaching has been built around the idea of clarifying who God is so that when he calls us to love him, we're not trying to cultivate a love for a God of man's own making or of confusion or twisted imaging of who God is, but we're going back to the core of who God has declared himself to be. It is a core conviction of mine that God himself is the essence of goodness, that him in relationship, Father, Son, Spirit, is the essence of goodness within relationship. And he invites us to join him in this glorious beauty of engaging with pure goodness. And it's only our humanity when it comes into contact with that which opposes it that makes us look at God and wonder if he truly is good. So as as my heart for discipleship and cultivating a community of people who love God and others well, Um, Part of how we do things is we try and walk our lives through practices that will cultivate our hearts towards God, of recognizing that he's a person to be known, not an entity to be loved. He is a God who sees us and is passionate about our lives, and he is a very real and knowable personality. And so for us to just have a sober moment where we treat God as this worthy individual of our best presence is what we seek to do when we come together. And so I just want to invite you to try and be as present to God as possible today, Um, even though some of the language we're going to be using comes with a bit of baggage. Um, in In the world, father and that whole role is so complex. I've been a father for 19 years now and uh, got got started when I was 10 and uh, 20, uh, 21. And so, uh, man, I have so many different things. I was, I was listening to uh, Cats in the Cradle today, um, just to get a little of the feels on. I was listening to uh, Creed, um, with arms wide open, you know that one? Um, depending on the generation, you're going to be nodding. Um, or even Will Smith. Yes, I still am okay with Will Smith. Um, just the two of us, right? All these things, they have these different emotions that kind of just bring memories. Um, I I remember when I was, like I said, 21, had an infant, and I had some time off work, thought it was the best thing ever. Nobody expected me to be anywhere else when Rachel was giving birth, and so I'm like, hey, that was great. It was like a vacation. Um, She had a different experience than I did. Whatever. Um, But I remember going back and being like, oh, I want to show my coworkers this new thing that I made. And... uh, and I'm a sucker for maple bars. I just love those donuts. They're so so delicious. And on the way to my work, I'm always driving by one of my favorite bakeries. And so I was just cruising. It was like lunchtime. I was going to drop in. Didn't have to work still. It was great. And I had Elijah with me in the back seat. He's now 19 and this big. Um, but I remember going and pulling in. I'm like, oh, I got, I got five minutes. I can get it. I can get a donut really quick. And so I just ran into the store and I'm like walking around the store on my cell phone, just like talking to Rachel, I think my wife. And, and uh, it, all of a sudden I've been in the store for longer than I should have been. And I realized like, it's not just me anymore. I got a, I have a child. He, he was watching the car for me. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that nobody like 
saw it and like broke a window like they do for puppies now. Um, but uh, yeah, that was my one of my just moments of being proud, but also like, oh shoot, this is this is bigger than I, I imagined it would be. And I think that's been a lot of our experiences is when you step into um, a responsibility or fatherhood or whatever it may be, we're like overwhelmed at different moments of like, whoa, this is this is a big deal. Um, I remember when I saw my, my daughter for the first time, our, my oldest, um, we were in England at the time, and so um, childbirth was free there, which was awesome, but scary. Um, I remember falling in love with her, seeing her wrapped up in her little fleece blanket that we took her home in. And also on the other side of it, I, I, I have of these like moments of like seeing red when I find out that a boy likes her for the first time, right? And I don't know where this anger comes from. I don't know where this righteous indignation comes from, but it's there. All these circumstances, the insanity of the rich feelings that you have when you see your child for the first time or the feeling of of your baby cozied up and falling asleep with their milk breath right here. It's just, it's powerful. But that mixed with the insanity of irrational teen years. and So it's a complex thing we're working with, right? So all that to say, in the story of your father, um, you as a father, or you being a child of a father, there's lots of different turns. I know for, for me, even um, the, the idea with, with our son, some of you guys know um, his story, um, it comes with lots of proud moments where I, I can think back building tree houses at each one of our, our homes that we've lived in, um, but also having to sign away custody to him, uh, to, to a treatment center. It's like... So like highs and lows, like I'm doing great. This is a dad moment, right? Take a picture, Ray. To, dude, God, you have to do a better job than me as a father because I'm doing my best and it's not enough. So just, just that soberness of, of bringing that to us today. God gives us this image of father. And for us, we're going to have to work through a little bit of the perspectives that we're bringing to this room. And so I just want to invite you to, first and foremost, just be a child today. Just a child. Just a child with with your own um, insecurities, your own imperfections, and approach this time with that in mind. Does that sound okay? All right, so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. We're going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to ask the Lord to give you help to set aside everything other than I am fundamentally child of God. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to understand the way you see us? And would you help us to see you? Oh, Lord, please give us a clear vision of you as the good and forgiving Father, not the begrudging Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I don't think we'll know until we're in, in heaven how much the image of God has been disturbed by broken images around us. I don't think until we see him for who he is, we're going to be able to see like the essence and the beauty that should be encapsulated in that term, Father. But throughout Scripture, we see that Jesus refers to him as the Father. We see that God says that he is the eternal Father. And so we have this term that we need to figure out. 
We've been looking at Exodus 34, 6, because this is the first place in the Bible that God says, hey, if you want to know who I am, this is me. I'm not going to hide anything. I'm going to give you who I am. I'm going to tell you that I'm, I'm loving and compassionate, that I'm gracious, and I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I'm also somebody who's slow to anger, but I'm also somebody who's just. And so that tension and dynamic nature of who God is, we continue to lean in and say, God, we want to know the real you. We don't want to have these broken visions of who you are. And so today I'm going to invite us to look back within the, the, even the, the last uh, few weeks when we've looking at, looked at the different characteristic traits of God and recognize that he's not just individually father, he is a certain kind of father. And so when we think about theology, God isn't just a bunch of individual traits all like separate. Oh, he's loving. Oh, but now he's wrathful. Oh, he's, he's this, he's that, he's that. No, he's those things all at once. And so whatever God is, he is that way as a father. And so I just want to read these through for you because these are the things we've been discovering about who God is. God is a generous, relational, not merely God, father. He is a generous father. He's a relational father. He's a compassionate father. He is a gracious father. He is a patient father. He is a loyal, loving father. And today we're talking about him as a forgiving father. So when we look at this uh, idea of what God describes himself to, Exodus 34, 6, I think you have it up on the screen. It says this, the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and said, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And then we get to the word, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This word forgiving is, uh, uh, in Hebrew, it's pronounced nasa. Nasa, which is, I'm not sure how you do that with no consonants. I think there's a, a list with it, but it's N-thangy, S-thangy. And somehow you get Nasa. So even back in the Bible, we had a space program going on. Um, most people would, would declare this to be something of like carrying or lifting. I am a God who carries iniquity and transgression and sin, or I lift off iniquity, transgression, and sin, or take away. And fifthly is forgive. He forgives. Another alternative um, uh, meaning that many scholars are, are looking into is, is this idea that NASA not only has the idea of forgiveness, but it carries this idea of like tolerance or willing to bear. So it kind of pairs with the idea that God is slow to anger. It has this willingness to carry some of our mess. And when I think about a dad, and some of, some of the dads that I've met, or not my dad, but there's a, a, a zero policy for messing up, right? That's not what God is describing himself to be. He's, he's saying, no, I'm forgiving. I have an ability that is uh, creating space so that your mess doesn't mess up us. So that your mess doesn't mess up us. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of look into seeing what these three things that God forgives or bears with or tolerates. He lists them in verse 7. It says he, he tolerates or, or forgives iniquity, which is like a misdeed. It's like you do something a little wrong. Okay? You just do it wrong. 
Secondly, it's transgression, which is like a crime. (laughs) You intentionally broke the law. You did something bad, and you know it. Like, you deserve justly your punishment. And the thirdly is sin, which simply just means missing the mark. And so I wonder what that means. If we look at God as, as, as a dynamic nature, he didn't just say, I forgive sins. He actually gives a broad range of kind of what he's willing to tolerate and work with. I want us to recognize that God is saying these things because there's a broad range of the ways that we can let, that, let, let God down or miss the mark ourselves. That we as human, we are dynamic individuals. And you know what? There's a million different ways that I can screw up, and I'm discovering a lot of them. But God says, listen, I am fundamentally a God who leans into this idea of forgiving and making room for you. In the myriad ways that you can miss the mark, whether that's not being the dad you wanted to be, and it's not this concise sin. It's just like, ah, I totally wish that I would have had better patience as I walked through the situation. God, you knew I was trying, but it didn't come out perfectly. God's like, you missed the mark? Yeah, totally. Come on, doesn't disturb our relationship. There's room for that. There's room for that. Or whether it's you've had a huge mess up in your life and you're like, it's evident, it broke the system. God is like, there's room for that. I, in my nature, am forgiving towards misdeed, crime, and missing the mark. And it's hard for us to realize because God is nicer than the nicest dad we've ever met. He is. His love is more sure. His, his grace is more un, uh, uh, unconditional. His, his love is, is more unblinking than we've ever discovered in the nicest person. And so we, we struggle with this. But something about what God declares to Moses about his nature. I mean, God lists off seven different characteristic traits of who he is in two verses, six and seven of 34. But notice the reaction of Moses is he carries from what God says about himself. In verse 8, Moses has the audacity to uh, assert that because you said you are, please therefore answer me in this way, which is Moses, in verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped and said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, please let the Lord go in our midst. For it is a stiff-necked people. And would you pardon our iniquity and our sin? And would you take us for your inheritance? Moses is approaching the presence of God, as we've discussed in the past, because the nation of Israel, moments after committing their fidelity to God in covenant, is literally making a pagan idol and having a massive worship festival to a God of their own making. And we've looked in the past. They said, here is your gods who brought you out of Israel. They weren't creating a new God. They were just creating their own version of God, a God that was manageable, right? And yet God looks and sees them making an image that looks nothing like him, worshiping, loving, offering this to this calf. He's like, "That's that's not me. I want you to know me. And so when Moses asked to know who God was, God declares himself to be this. And his desire, listen, isn't, Moses isn't desiring 
that God would have mercy and stay at a distance. Do you notice this? Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped and said, If now I have found favor in your sight, oh, please let the Lord go into our midst, into and among us. If we have found favor in your sight, I know we're a stiff-necked people. Will you pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance? There's a relational expectation that Moses believes he has the ability to call into and beckon towards because, not because Moses is special, not because he deserves it, but because of who God says he is. God, the infinite one, has pinned himself in different places and committed himself to being who he is in different ways. And it's actually a piece that he's, he's gifted to us and says, hey, you can count on me to be this way towards you. So the Limitless One gives us this invitation to see him and know him as the one who makes space for me. I love that Moses' reaction to God and his disclosure is, please, will you make it possible for us to be near you? He uses the word pardon, which is different than NASA, but it's the same word uh, or similar word. Uh, it's, it's pronounced uh, selah, which S-L-H. I don't know how they do this in Greek with no consonant or no vowels. I mean, it's, it is a thing. Um, and, but this is fundamentally forgiveness and, and practicing forbearance. The cry of the longing heart. Listen, the cry of the person who wants to know and love the real God is closeness. Closeness. In my own understanding of putting these two words, NASA and Moses' response for pardon and Selah together, um, I understand God to be saying, I lovingly tolerate your humanness and I willingly remove your shame and your guilt that you may be near me. This is forgiveness. I make room for you. And I willingly and happily remove from you that which holds you back from me. This is the fundamental default posture towards you by your maker. God is a God who makes room for for our mistakes, for our failing, our shortcomings, And for our all-out criminal rebellion, He makes room for us. First thing I want us to take away from this idea is God. God is a Father who makes room. Other religions um, interact with forgiveness in different ways. Some not at all. Others in uh, slightly different ways. And we see even Judaism has an early idea of forgiveness. This is one of the early ways that Israel will look back and go like, hey, Jesus, you say you can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins, referencing this point. Yet Jesus, somehow, when he comes to the earth, he takes the forgiveness that Israel had known, and he multiplies it and secures it for eternity. I mean, if you were to look at different religions, whether it's animalism, they have no awareness of a personal God. They just worship creatures and creation. Hinduism, there's no idea of forgiveness. You are stuck in the the karmic 
repetition of reincarnation. If you screw up in life, ooh, if you screw up in life, you're, you're, you're coming back as something you don't want to come back as, right? You're stuck in this loop. No redemption. Buddhism, there's no understanding of a forgiving God. Islam has a semblance of forgiveness, but it's not in the context of relationship with the Father. And that's what I want to push into today, is forgiveness in the context of family is beautiful and powerful in what sets the gospel apart. Judaism, they had an idea of forgiveness. As you know, there was a temple system, and I... Um, if you were to look at an overarching view of even the temple grounds, sorry, I don't have a picture of it for you. Um, there is the courts of the Gentiles. It's concentric rectangles, so to speak, as, as you get closer to the middle and God's presence, you had to go through more ritual and you had to qualify through different things like Gentiles. You were the furthest out courts. You could like hang on around the edges. If you were a lady and Jew, you could go a little closer if you're a man and you, you go a little closer, if you were in the priestly community, you go a little closer. And if you were the guy who got to go into God's very presence in the Holy of Holies, you see, there was this ritualistic system, a reminder, wall after wall after wall, that God and his holiness is not safe for us to be around so long as we are covered in iniquity and sin. And in order for us to get to him, something else had to pay the price. So year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, scapegoat after scapegoat, sins are distributed elsewhere so that for a moment, people could have this semblance of relationship. But it wasn't until Jesus who broke through and gave the very uh, ultimate expression of God's forgiving fatherly heart towards us. It's beautiful. Um, I think it's easier for me, at least, and I'll, I'll speak for myself, to think of Jesus being more like forgiving. Do you know what I mean? Like, think about Father God as like the OT God who, who struck the people, all that good stuff. And it's like, okay, you don't get that guy mad. And for me to kind of go like, okay, as long as I'm with Jesus, I'm good in that crazy guy's presence, right? Uh, that can be the default mentality that some people bring to it. And maybe I'm just, maybe this is a straw man. But for a lot of my youth, that was it. I was afraid of the Father, thankful for Jesus, and had no clue what to do with the Holy Spirit, right? But Jesus, even though it says things like these, uh, when, uh, when Jesus said, hey, I came in Luke 5, 30, uh, or 31, I came for those uh, who, who are sick, not for the well. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance, that 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 brings this comfort level to me. Yet Jesus was imaging God, the Father, as he came to the earth. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. John 14, 9. Hebrews 1, 3 says this, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, in all that he did, was trying to give more clarity, more revelation to who the Godhead really is. So if your idea of God as Father doesn't look like Jesus walking on the earth, your idea is broken. What we're reading in our understanding 
and our fears and baggage into the image of who God is. And so when you go to worship God and you have a God that looks even a little different than the God of reality, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. And so we have to be really diligent to go, okay, God, I want to know you. Like, like Moses, show me your glory. Show me who you are. I want to know you. I want to, I want to get to know the texture of your presence. I want to understand your heart, how it moves, what you love, what you hate, what, what you don't care about so that I won't care about it. God, help me to know who you are. So this pursuit of who God is and, and seeking him out is no small task. It's well worth our time and effort. That, that whole idea, Jesus says, I came to, to give you an, an idea of who the God, eternal God is. Notice that Jesus didn't have this cold relationship with the Father. He often would go away by himself and just, uh, just pour his heart out to the Father. That He loved the Father. That went on the cross and that relationship was somehow complicated. It broke his heart because he knew how to see the Father. He says, I live to glorify the Father. What I do, I live so that you will know Him and you will know me. This is life eternal. So Jesus cared that we knew who the Father was, that we knew who the essence of God was. And let it not be lost on us that Jesus even uses this this parable that was just read to us in Luke 15 that describes this element of of the human experience. Whether you're the son who stays home and does your best to live up to expectations and to earn your place in God's favor, or you're the son who's like, forget it, I'm going to the far country and I'm going to live it up. And then you put your legs between your tail and you walk back to the father. It's the human experience. My question as your pastor is, how do we live the human experience and not walk away as, as the bitter son who, who rejects the father's invitation to come into the feast in favor of staying in the fields and diligently convincing himself that he is the good son, that he is worthy, that his faithfulness is better than communion with his own father. I don't want to be that. But I don't want to spend my life in the hill country either. I want to, I want to learn to be comfortable at the father's house when he gives me what I don't deserve. I, honestly, like if I was in that place, I, I would have been the son, I would have groveled all that. But I, I, would, I probably would not have received the ring. I wouldn't have taken the cloak, the family cloak from my father who says, welcome home. I'd be like, Dad, please save the cow, the calf, whatever. Like, let me show you I really mean it before you slaughter the calf. Just let me, let me suffer a little bit. Let me, let me get to the place where I feel like I'm deserving of it. When God is like, no, I, I'm giving you forgiveness, not because your, your apology was good enough or because you've proven yourself worthy, but it's because it's my nature. And that's what Exodus 34 is all about. 
I am faithful to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. As a community, I want us to get good at coming to our senses because honestly, daily, we make these micro trips to the far country. If we're thinking about this parable that Jesus gives of the father and the prodigal son, little ways that we, we choose to go our own way. We choose to, to fall victim to things that we think will satisfy us. We choose to fall victim to cultural expectations, the busyness of life. And we find ourselves in moments when we stop and we get the smelling salt. Anybody ever had, had that smelling salt? Were you like concussed or what was going on? What was yours? Uh, <laughs> fainted. And yep. Oh man, it's, it's a moment. <sighs> yeah, my first experience of smelling salt, I was getting a tattoo on my back and uh, I ended up asleep somehow and uh, smelling this very strange, looking at this very tattooed, scary looking figure and I had no clue where I was. I was like, ah! Um, what, how do we get smelling salt as Christians? where we come to our senses, where we get shaken from the, 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 the milieu of life, of just going through the process of walking in, walking out, honoring God with our lips, and having our hearts completely unmoved by God. What is it going to be that's going to be the smelling salt of our life that's going to startle us, where we open our eyes and we're like, how did I get here? Where is home? And how do we remember, as the son did, that I have a father at home? Look at verse 17 of Luke 15. When he came to himself and said this, how many of my father's hands servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here of hunger. I got a plan. I'm going to go back to who? My father. My father. It's the orientation that when we're in Christ, we're a new creation. He stamps us with his approval, and he locks us into his family. You see, the, the hill country is not just a place where non-believers live. It's where a lot of Christians live throughout the weeks and throughout the years of our life. And it's been normalized. Christians can live in the far country. God's grace is awesome. The Father will always be there. Dude, there's no life to be found in the far country. None. The language that's in the text, I won't go into it, too nerdy. He didn't just hire himself out to a local, he enslaved himself to someone. And his master didn't even care enough to give him the food that he would give to his pigs. The son comes back, coming to the father before he even, you know, he's, he rehearsed his answer, right? This is what I'll say. I'm going to like grovel and I'll make him one of my, I'll be a servant. The father, verse 20, when he arose, he said, he, sorry, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was away off still, that, that word is the same word as distant country. While he was distant country away, 
the father. His father saw him and felt compassion before he did anything. He just saw his face. And he ran and embraced and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate. Notice this. We have such an easy time. I have such an easy time going, Jesus is my friend and God tolerates me. He begrudgingly allows me to be in heaven because I'm buddies with Jesus. John 16, 27. For the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. There's no break in the Trinity as far as God's heart and love towards you. He adores you. He sent his son to claim you. He allowed Jesus, his precious eternal son, to suffer immeasurably that he may bless you immeasurably. He let the son of heaven become the son of man, that the sons of men might be the sons of heaven. God so loves us. And his beckoning heart is love me in return. Love me in return. Let's keep it simple. Love God with all of our hearts, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our body strength. But how do we do this? How do we know if, if the love I feel towards God is, is what it's supposed to be like? Let's not just drink the Kool-Aid and say, I love God, you love God, I love God. How, how does that look? Well, Scripture tells us a few different descriptions. Loving God looks like doing what God desires for us to do. It looks like caring about what he has to say. Not just lip service, but allowing his word to penetrate our ears, our minds, our souls to affect the very decision-making factory of your person so that the decisions you make are like stamped with this gratitude of God's goodness to you. You know, I, I wish that, that, that loving God is, is formed most easily and often when God is like, when life is good, there's no problems, everything's great. You know what? The times where intimacy with God is built is not when you see how strong you are and you're grateful for it. Intimacy with God is formed through pain, through these moments of vulnerability where you can't hide behind your stuff. It's formed through broken moments where you reach out to God and he shows up for you. Luke 7 gives us this really interesting um, story. And we're, I feel like we could just do, we could sit in this for weeks, but we're not going to. Luke seven thirty six. one of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And when he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table, 
in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at, at his feet, she began to weep, and she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kiss his feet and anointed them with the ointment. That sounds like love. That sounds like beauty. And she's got it figured out. I mean, not only did she hear that he was around, she put it in motion and ran to the house. She stepped into a place where judgment was all around her just to get to the feet of Jesus. She dipped down low and used the very essence of what she had, her life savings likely, her own hair, to, to worship and express this love. She was desperate to show Jesus love, not because it was something she was trying to generate. She like jived herself up. If I, if, maybe if I do this, then I'll have grace on me. No, Jesus says your sins are forgiven, not because of that, but because of your faith. So we see this one woman in the room and another person in, in the same room and vastly different reactions. Verse 39, And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So instead of uh, worshiping Jesus, he puts himself as a judge of Jesus which it's so much easier to judge than it is to worship or love. It's so much easier to tear down and say why something isn't worthy of you than it is to kneel and offer the real you in elevating that, isn't it? Verse 41, a certain money lender, Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A couple months versus over a year of, of wages. When they, they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, who's, uh, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, good job, buddy. You know it. But then, in the midst of this woman being judged, he turns towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven, for she loved much because she's been forgiven much. 49. He looks at her in verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In this moment, we have to realize what Jesus is doing in telling this parable, both practitioners or people in the parable, both were in debt, true? Both were forgiven. In this room, he's, he's actually putting 
Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman in that same parable. He's not denying that, that there is a sin issue. He even says it. This woman, although her sins were many, verse 47, she's forgiven. Sin isn't the issue in the room. You're both sinners. You're both in debt. The issue is vulnerability. This is not a question of sinfulness when we look at each other and ourselves. It is a question of vulnerability in the presence of Jesus. Are we going to sit ourselves in the seat of judge or are we going to sit in the seat of worshiper? You see, vulnerability creates genuine love. We know that God forgives sins and it is beautiful My fear for us is that we would know that God is forgiving, but that we would settle for the field at home when we return to Him. That we'd be too proud when He looks down at our clothes that have been marred by the world. And it's embarrassing. I don't want to be close. I just, I just, I don't want you to be mad. We don't want God to notice that we pawned off the family ring because we got so desperate. And don't even look down at my feet. Sandals were a sign of, lack of sandals were a sign of indignity, humiliation, and enslavement. So when the son comes back and the father puts a new coat ring, those are status-affirming things. When he puts sandals on his feet, that's elevating his son who had made himself a slave back into dignity with the family. You see, when God receives you, and you come to Him with your sins and your brokenness, when you come to your senses and go, man... I don't want to face God, but even a servant in his house is better than the muck that I have found myself in. We have to remember that God makes room for our missing the mark, our crimes against him, and the misdeeds of our life. He watches for our return, and he longs not merely to restore us, but to build out our lives. I think this is really, I'm going to end with this uh, illustration. You've noticed there's a globe here. Right? This is not going to be a, a world history thing. Um, I want you to imagine this as your soul. Okay. When we think about this image between Simon and the woman who, who had a lot of junk in her life, you know, Simon, he, he may have... He probably viewed his soul as being pretty nice, right? I don't need God. I don't need you. This woman, man, she, she's done some stuff, right? I mean, she's done some stuff. And it wasn't good. Oh, and did you hear how she talked to that, her kid? Wow. My goodness. And what about, what about how she makes her money? Oh, my goodness. 
shameful. And it just begins to fill space. She thinks about it all the time. When she thinks about going to the temple, it's like, no, I, I can't. I shouldn't. When she heard that Jesus was uh, at this feast, there was like this, oh, maybe, maybe, but that's, I don't know if he would want me to even touch his feet. When she walked into the room and, and she saw him laying there, her heart raced, and, and then she, she saw her, her alabaster jar that she had probably inherited from a father or from one of her relatives, and it was her lifeline, you know. She had some plans for that. The temptation was to just keep it, save it. Maybe there's more or a better purpose for that. And on and on it goes in, in your life and in my life. We, we do things and things happen to us. Not merely just stuff that we do. You know, sometimes people, they, they're more than happy to take some of their junk and throw it on us. Right? Just, man. It almost chokes out some of the joy of life sometimes, you know? It's like starving for oxygen, for, for love. And so we, we try and address some of these things by, you know, maybe pretty it up. We'll, we'll add some stuff or whatever it might be, you know. Just continue to build into our lives, covering up the painful spots with different colors, but nothing really fixes it. You see, when we look at our souls, contrary to the primary academic perspective right now. We're not, we're not born good. We were born broken. We are born into a world where we are victims of sin and we become villains of giving sin. And it wrecks us and it's shameful and we're embarrassed and it damages our ability to feel at peace with God because we know that we are not intended to have this stuff between us and him. So forgiveness, when we look at the biblical understanding, we often carry slave mentality that wants to keep us from his presence, but forgiveness builds intimacy. It doesn't destroy or deteriorate it. The son, when he came home, he returned as a slave, but he was not received as one. God is determined to offer his forgiveness towards any person who would step towards and ask for. First point, and I'm going to have all three right now, all right? Don't get too stressed. Forgiveness is the place where vulnerability meets willing and effective embrace. It is the place where vulnerability meets willing and effective embrace. Two, God's forgiveness in Jesus, destroys fear. Perfect love casts out fear, we're told in 1 John 4. So as a believer, if we carry the idea of who God says he is, he's like, I've made room for you. And there's room for you to mess up here. It's not what I desire. 
but it's not going to cause my arms to close and for me to push you away. I am prone to forgive and willing to make space for you. A forgiving father is an eternal forgiving in relationship. That's the fatherly element is that is a relational, eternal peace that God brings you into and secures through the death of Jesus. And thirdly and finally, God's forgiveness produces peace. Shalom. In Scripture, when Jesus sends her away and says, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. The word is so much more than ceasefire. Go in holistic, healed life and vibrancy. That's what he's saying. This is not living vibrantly. If our souls are covered with wounds and brokenness and and guilt and shame, and when we come into God's presence, we're like, please don't look at that area. Like, okay, uh, so... Some of our experiences are like this. All right, I'm gonna, I'm, a, I'm a bad person, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask for forgiveness, and I'm gonna confess my sins, and I'm gonna let God have this area of my life, and you get a little cleaned up, right? And we're like, oh, thank you for forgiving me. I'm so grateful. Oh my gosh. And then there's a lot more life that continues to happen and has been untouched by the Lord. But you got this one area. Right? One area of your life, you're like, I'm not going to hell anymore. That's great. I'm so excited. And so when you worship, you're able to worship God, oh man, powerfully here. Whenever you think about how bad you are, but He still loved you, you're like, awesome. But what about the areas of your life where it's not merely something that you have done, but it's something that's been done to you? You see, 1 John goes on to say this in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. Simon, the Pharisee, you better hear that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, there are things that we need to confess because we have done them, and there are things that God wants to remove and cleanse from your life because they've been done against you. You and I, we all carry things in our past where we have the residue of somebody else's brokenness in our life and we are invited by Jesus to say, hey, there's room for that broken injury as well. And I want to remove even the residue of your uh, experience of brokenness. And so what God is trying to do is he's inviting us. When he says, the woman uh, who loves much has been forgiven much, What if forgiveness or exposing more of our life to God was actually a hidden hack to loving God more? So here's my my premise. If this parable that Jesus told of the two people who have been forgiven much, we all know we want to love God more. And I've tried. I've tried to pretend to love God more tried to convince myself to love God more. But only when I invite God into deeper, darker recesses of my human experience do I actually expose more of my true person, which allows me to have more of His light, 
more of his healing. It's almost like he's chipping away this wall of protection that sin creates in my life. That our souls are actually almost three-dimensional where we're able to have more of the surface area of your soul healed and redeemed by Jesus and the more of yourself that you're willing to bring into the presence and healing uh, presence of Jesus and let his hands touch, the more of your soul is opened and revealed. It's more ways that God's love and grace can like come and encounter you. You don't do it. You're just like, God, I trust that if you get your hands on this broken part of me that I don't even know if I want to face, I, I, I believe that you are good. And I believe that you are leading me towards good and not bad. You came to give life, not take it. So so what would it look like for us to ever continue to say, God, there there is more real estate of my soul that, that you have yet to invade. That God, would you come even more intricately? Would you pull apart this thing in my life? Would you bring more healing there and more hope there, more forgiveness there, more cleansing there so that actually my experience of you is so much more dynamic than just a prayer at that one time so that I didn't go to hell. It's you have shown up in a myriad of ways to heal my person. And the more so you do, the more my soul is able to breathe the very breath of heaven, allowing to drink in the goodness that you are so that I might breathe out this love that comes from genuine encounter. I think this is the essence of becoming more alive in Jesus. It's the work of inviting Jesus to go deeper and to get more involved and more entwined with these areas of our life that seem like they have no purpose or aren't helping. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if that's helpful. We'll just leave that there. So, I'll end with this. As a community, we seek to be a people who are ever growing in our ability to love God. Like genuinely love Him. Not just saying the words, walking through the motions. But having this this internal dance of our hearts. A a quickening of our pulse when we're around God. And, And we are like containing this energy that has been birthed from heaven. That's loving God in response, and we simply allow this energy of love to to transform our actions, and we embody it in different ways. We long to be a people who love God well. We seek to love God. We want to have the feeling of joy and goodness of God in our very real being. We want to feel it course through our lives When we close our eyes, we want to see God in our mind's eye. We want to hear what He has to say. We want our ears pricked by His Word when His Spirit is moving. We want our hearts to be pounding as we encounter and hear and wrestle with who He is. And we want our actions and our lives to be animated by the Spirit of God who echoes the very heart of Jesus.
as we live out his life in our very world. This is the desire that we would embrace God for who he is and allow him to transform us bit by bit, person by person, story by story, coming alive to be able to love him more. Churches can do a lot of things, but we will do nothing well if we don't get communion with the Father right, where we sit with him and we allow him to speak to us through Scripture. Like, read the Bible. If you want to discover what's going on inside, read the Bible. It, it reads us. It, it unearths brokenness in us. And the beauty, I really want you to hear this, the beauty is God is the one who has created space for you to be imperfect on the journey. So don't be afraid of sins. Don't be afraid of being like, I don't know if I want to open up that can. God, is freedom is at the end of that door. And sometimes we need others to walk through that. Right? And God is good. He's created a family. And so let's, let's take some time and just worship Him. Feel free to continue that conversation. Next week we'll be talking about justice how God cares about um, bringing justice. And so, yeah. All right. I'm going to close in some prayer. I'm going to give you a, time, a minute to linger. God, um, we've heard you. I pray that if there's verses or unique moments, Lord, that we need as individuals to grab hold of, would you remind us of them? Right now, God, we want to take communion, and communion is a, a table of oneness. And it's only open because you have opened it by your blood, your body torn, your blood shed, so that we can be united with you. So I pray that this would be a sacred table, that people would find um, a beautiful oneness with you. And you tell us to examine our hearts. So before we worship, before we take communion, Lord, I, I just I encourage us as a body to, to take seriously. Engage your heart. Don't approach the table without your heart engaged. God, is there any way in me that I need you to be you and be forgiving towards? Jesus, thank you that you declare to us that you're not willing that anything should stand between us and you. You have conquered death. You have conquered sin. You have conquered Satan. And we are set free. So Jesus, I pray that we would step into that freedom and a rich life with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.